Jesus is alive. Amen? Jesus is alive. Amen? Again, hang on. Just before we're going to get, we're going to get to the sermon in a minute. This man was dead, but he's alive. Right now, that man, Christ Jesus, is alive before the throne of God forever. And because he's alive, you are alive. I want you to realize that for a second and realize how that is everything. That's it. You don't need anything else other than that man, Jesus, was dead and now he's alive for you. If that doesn't wake you up and get you excited, why are you here? He is alive. You're alive because of him. You're alive every moment of every day through him, for him. He lives in you. That's good news. That's what this is about. That's what all this, that's why we are gathered, is to worship him. That's what all of this is about. It's not about rules or policies or music or lights or sermons or this or that. It's about worshiping the risen Savior every moment of our lives with everything we do. That's what all this is about, y'all. If we would just let that be the fuel in our fire, we'd be unstoppable. Mm. Goodness. I need to reset my mind real quick, get into the sermon. I could sit up there and just go in that all day. I mean, that's it. <laughs> Thank you, Renee. I got Renee's permission. We're good to go. No. <laughs> Thank you, Renee. No, um, man, I want to make sure I do a few things. Uh, Real quick, again, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship. You get to worship a living God. He hears you and he loves you. He is for you and you have all of his promises forever because he's good. Oh, he's speaking to you right now. I promise if you'll listen, he's speaking. So today we're going we're gonna to dive into some f- amazingly fun, fun things that are just like, oh. But real quick, before I start anywhere, special thanks. Last week I got the basket of goodies. You know, and you, it was, it, I saw some nice goodies in there. Y'all know I like Diet Mountain Dew. Y'all know I like the little protein bars. Y'all know, I, so I was like, oh, this is great. I love it. There's a couple of cards in there. And you open the cards and you're expecting, you know, just something sweet. I love cards. I love notes, letters, by the way. If anybody wants to do letters and be a pen pal, I love it. There's something about wax sealing a letter. I just, oh, it's the funnest thing in the world. Anyways, but I start opening up these cards, and you get some nice gifts in there, and then you get some gifts that you're like, whoa. So, hey, thank y'all. Oh, my goodness, thank y'all for the pastor appreciation gifts. Thank y'all. Those were so thoughtful. Those were so wonderful, and I deeply appreciate them. Some of y'all are also going to get some cards thanking you specifically um, but there's some people who didn't write their names down who I can't thank specifically. So thank you to everybody. Now, last week, last week was wild, wasn't it? If you weren't here last week, you missed out. I'm just telling you, we, I don't know when God's going to do that again. 
Okay, not today. Anyways, so last week, we get in, we have worship, we have some of our friends come lead worship, which was just amazing in and of itself. And we start getting into the sermon. We're talking about the final hours that Jesus is alive, or to his death. They got him on the cross, the first three hours on the cross. And then the last three hours, the scripture says there was darkness that covered the land. We get halfway into the scripture, and what happens? Boom, lights out. All we had on was the emergency lights. But I was like, wow, this is a really... We're talking about darkness covering the land, and, and God blew that transformer at the substation just for us. It wasn't for anybody else. But wow, that, it just, oh, it was, it was so, it, it made you feel, it shook us. It just woke everybody up, if nothing else. But I want to recap quickly what we kind of talked about in case you, you got swept up in the day. Last week, after those lights went out, and Jesus in the final hours hanging on the cross... We focused on two things that happened in those final hours. There was a point where Jesus looks down as he's hanging there on the cross near death. And he sees his mother, Mary, the woman who gave birth to him. And he sees a disciple who hasn't scattered like the rest of them. Now there's several other women who are named. But among them, John and his mother, Mary. And Jesus says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. He gives them one to another. And what he's doing there is he's instituting a new family that's not based on our blood, but on his blood. As they were both believers in him, that was his mother, that was her son, because we're all in the family of God. If we recall the verse from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.12, It said, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we see that this right that is given to them is, uh, in a way, this metaphor kind of inaugurates this because because of the cross. We are now become children of God because we have received him, we believe in his name, and have become children of God by his right, by his authority. We're going to touch again on that today. And then in the last moments before Jesus dies, he cries out. One of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. It's the Scripture which we literally live by whenever he proclaimed on the cross that it is finished. The wrath of God against sin was poured out. It is finished. Everything complete. We were now completely forgiven in him. Given the right to become children of God by believing in him because he did everything necessary. So he proclaims that it is finished. And then he gives up his spirit to die. The scripture is very specific in that. Death did not take him. He gave himself to die. He had the authority. That's why he had the authority to take his life back up again. That's why the Holy Spirit raised him back up. Because death has no authority over Jesus Christ. He gave himself to die. So this week, we're continuing in our series, Follow Me. Last week, we we shifted. We've been looking at Peter. We kind of shifted over and focused on John. This week, Peter and John are still going to be in the story, but we're going to shift again. We're going to change completely from where we've been. Most of the time in the scripture, let's just be honest, it's 
men get all, they see all the action, right? Most of the time when you're reading about all these things in Scripture, a lot of the, the heroes in the faith, they're men. So sometimes it might seem like women get left out. Well, what, what is there for me? I'm, I'm here too, Jesus. I'm a believer too. So today we're going we're gonna to shift from the disciples and we're going to look through the eyes of a woman named Mary. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know there's about a thousand Marys in the Scripture. There's Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the, mother, the wife of Clopas, Mary. Everybody's named Mary. It was, was kind of like a John Smith kind of, John Doe kind of name. I mean, everybody was named Mary, every woman. Not any men, that'd be strange. Um, Mary Magdalene. So this woman named Mary, all we need to know about her for today is that she is a woman who, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was seven demons were cast out of her. She's from a place called Magdala. It's on the, um, near Galilee, I want to say southwest side. I could be wrong. Um, but that's where she's from. But she's followed Jesus at some point. We don't really hear a lot about her through Scripture. You might have heard other things that, that she's the, the harlot that comes and wipes his feet. You might have heard this, this, and that. There's even been some crazy things that came out in the movie and a book called The Da Vinci Code. And the Bible doesn't support any of that stuff, okay? We're going to go on just what the scripture actually says. Mary is a woman who is delivered. She follows Jesus, we know, all the way up to his crucifixion. So she's who we're going to pick up with today. Now again, in the final moments, Jesus cried out that he's finished. He committed his spirit to God, right? He handed himself over and died. And when he died, there's a whole lot of things that happen. I mean, we could get off into some crazy tangents today that I'm not going to get to. I'm going to get us to the tomb today. But just to help us set the story, when Jesus died... There was an earthquake. Rocks split. In the temple, there's a veil between the holy place, the common places and the holy places. And the veil was torn in two from the top down. From above is actually what the word says. We'll do a fun study on that one day. Talking about from above. Whenever Jesus says you must be born again, you must be born from above is the same word. The veil was torn from above. It's a whole other sermon. Anyways, earthquake, the rocks are splitting, the veil tears from the top, and then graves are opened, and dead saints appear to people in the city. That could be a whole, we, we, we're not even going to touch that one today. I don't got time to get into that. So all of these things happen that just speak to Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being Messiah. And Jesus has died. It's the darkest moment in all of human history. And the earth, all of creation is shook by this. But our story continues. Now because it's the day of, the pre- of preparation, the Jews, not wanting to defile their land, go and, and tell Pilate and, and the Romans, we need to take these bodies down because tomorrow's a Sabbath. It's a high Sabbath. And to have these bodies hanging would defile our land. Hang on. You just murdered the Son of God and you're worried about defiling the land. You see the hypocrisy there, but they don't understand that. They're worried about, no, we got to follow this, we got to follow the traditions of what everything says because that's what God really wants. No, he, anyways. They asked to have Jesus and the others pulled down. So, what do the Romans do? The Romans are going to make sure these men are dead. 
They go and they break the legs of the first man beside Jesus to make sure that he suffocates and dies. They go to the other man. They break his legs so that he suffocates and dies as he's hanging there. And then they come to Jesus. What does the scripture already said? That he gave up his spirit. So he is dead. So they don't need to break Jesus' legs. Instead, they just pierce his side. And from his side come forth uh, blood and water. And he is pierced. Just as the scripture said he would be. None of his bones were broken. Just as the scripture said. Even in his death, Jesus is still fulfilling messianic prophecy about himself. And then a man goes to Pilate. A well-off man. His name's Joseph. He's from Arimathea. And he's a secret follower of Jesus. He doesn't want to get in trouble with, with, the, uh, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and all that. He still doesn't want to be persecuted, but, but, but he does follow and believe in Jesus. So he goes and asks Pilate if, if he can take down the body and bury it. If he can have the body. Pilate grants this to him. And then so Joseph and a man named Nicodemus. Does anybody remember where Nicodemus came from? Nicodemus, back in John chapter 3, if we remember the most famous verse in all of the Bible, the one everybody knows, even if you don't know the Bible, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Those words were spoken to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. We don't know in that moment after that when Nicodemus became a follower, but when Jesus dies, Nicodemus, who might have been a secret follower sometimes, shows up and what was once secret has now become public. As he and Joseph go, they take the body, they prepare it because it's 3 p.m. whenever Jesus died. They need to get it wrapped and taken care of and put away in a tomb before sundown, before the Sabbath happens. So they, they do this. They get all the ointments, the things, the, the strips. They wrap him up. They do, it's probably in a, in a rush hurry, okay? And we know that, that Mary and, and some of the other women are watching, which is why they come back with all their spices and oils and stuff and ointments because the men doing it in a rush probably didn't do it right the first time, right? How many women understand that? So they wrap him. They prepare his body there's a tomb nearby, a tomb that no one has ever been in. So he goes into that tomb. They put him there. But the Jews are worried about this, right? They think that some of his followers are going to come steal the body. So they go, they ask and have Pilate. They say, listen, we need to secure this. Pilate gives them permission. They have a giant stone placed in front of the tomb. They have it sealed and they place guards there. Nobody's going to get through. Got a giant rock. It would take a bunch of fellows to move. Got guards. Got the seal. Nobody is getting out. And that's about where we're going to pick up today. So Jesus dies, goes into that tomb that evening. The next day, he's still in that tomb, the Sabbath. And then on the first day, the following day, at some point... Before that, in the wee hours of the night, there's another great earthquake and, and an angel descends from heaven. And he moves the stone away. And when the guards see him, they become like dead men. 
I don't know what, what happened to them, honestly, but the Bible says they became as dead men. The stone is rolled away. And then while it is still dark, John tells us that Mary comes to the tomb. Now, there's a lot that happens on the day the empty tomb is discovered. we got several groups kind of coming and going back and forth. We're going to focus on what John presents us in this scripture today. So we're going to look at just these parts. There's other pieces that we could try to bring together, but we're just going to focus on what John says today. So Mary arrives, and she finds the tomb is empty, right? And so what does she do? She, she runs, and she goes and tells Peter and John. She runs and tells Peter and John. So then they set off and come running to see the tomb. Now, again, remember this. Judas betrayed Jesus and then went and hanged himself. Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. But whenever someone comes to him with news about Jesus, he's running right back to Christ. So both of them take off running. Now, what I think about this. So let's, let's get, remember the context. The Son of God is dead. These are the darkest moments in human history. But I love God's, I guess we could call it his style, his grace. Because even in the darkest moment, we're going to find some comfort in the scripture through some humor. It's very, it's very interesting. It's very, very, I call it funny why this would be put in here. So think about this. You got Peter and John running to the tomb, right? You got them running. I'm thinking like action hero style. Just, I mean, they are just running, right? You've got, you've got John the humble who, when he records the gospel, he won't even put his name in the scripture. He just calls himself the one Jesus loved. You know, he's Mr. Humble. He's not going to He's just running. And then you got Peter, right? Peter is the leader. He's the first in everything. He's going he's gonna to smoke John all the way to the tomb. John's going to eat his dust. He's going to get there first. He's going to be the first one to see Jesus. What does the scripture tell us? It says both of them were running together. They're running to see Jesus. But then what does John tell us? But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John, the author of the gospel, John the humble, John who won't put his name in scripture, says, and by the way, John outran Peter to the tomb, see you, and got there first. It's kind of a funny moment if you think about it. I mean, this is, it doesn't really seem contextually appropriate to kind of chuckle at that, but for the rest of human history, we know that John beat Peter to the tomb. We can always kind of chuckle at that. I think that's God being graceful to us through humor. Even in the darkest times. And then eventually, Mary's probably come running along behind them. So the men get to the tomb, right? They get there. John reached it first. He doesn't go in immediately. Peter comes running along after, probably out of breath. And because he sees John there, he races all the way in, you know. They find that the body's not there. So what do they do? They go home. Kind of seems a little anticlimactic, right? They, they ran, they got to the tomb, and there's nothing, right? 
Let's begin reading in John 20, verses 11 through 18. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Remember, Mary has come up running. And at some point, the guys have gone home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken my Lord. And I don't know where they've lain him. I mean, she's weeping. She's sobbing. I I can't get into that mode right now. But this woman is weeping and sobbing, probably uncontrollably. She sees angels, but reacts in just normal mourning emotion. She doesn't even act like she's talking to angels. And having said this, she turned around. Remember, she stooped to look in, saw them. She's crying. She's weeping. She doesn't know where Jesus is. These guys are talking to her. They're like, why are you sad? She's like, because Jesus is gone. He's dead. He's gone. And she turns. She turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you laid him and I will take him away. She doesn't recognize him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned to him and in Aramaic said, Rabboni, which means teacher. She's, she goes from not knowing who this guy is to all of a sudden realizing, this is Jesus, teacher. She's so excited. And Jesus said to her, she, I mean, she turns and she just grabs a hold of him in a big old bear hug. He was dead and gone. And now she's embracing him in a hug. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, She said, I have seen the Lord. She told all that he had said to her. I love this because this story, this passage, it exemplifies how God does things way outside of the way we would, right? I'm just thinking about this. If I'm Jesus, okay, let's play for a minute. That's a little blasphemous, but let's pretend I'm Jesus for a minute. How am I going to make my return, right? I have risen from the dead. I conquered sin and death. I have redeemed my people, my bride forever for eternity. I win. Here we go. When I'm coming back, we got the angel army. Y'all strike up the angel army as loud as you can. Get the parade going right here. Earthquakes, thunderbolts, lightning. Everybody's going to see all at once and and fall down and worship the risen Savior. We're going to proclaim it to everybody. But is that what Jesus did at all? No. I mean, even when the disciples came, his own disciples, they come running to the tomb, right? We got 
Peter, who's typically seen as the leader, and John, who's very close to Jesus, obviously, who was reclining at his bosom at the Last Supper, right? The two of probably the closest disciples to him in his earthly relationship, he doesn't appear to them when they come looking for him. Why not? Because Jesus has chosen to appear to this woman. He doesn't do things the way we would. He doesn't show himself to the city, to any officials, to any of the hierarchy, to any of the powerful, to any of the rich, to any of the whatever. Even to the leaders of his own disciples. He shows himself to a woman. He chose her. So again, think about this. She's there, she's at the tomb, she's talking to angels and doesn't realize that she's mourning that much. If you literally saw Jesus die, you heard him speak those words and saw the life leave his eyes on that cross. He's dead. And then to come a couple of days later and realize his body is now missing, not only is he dead, but somebody has defiled his body and taken it and taken it away. So now you can't even go mourn your dead teacher. Overwhelmed with grief and despair, there is no hope. And then Jesus turns, then Mary turns, and Jesus speaks to her. And he calls her by name. If you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep and calls them by name. If you know the Lord Jesus, he has called you by name. He knows you. The good shepherd knows you. Let's look at what Jesus says to her, right? The angels asked her, uh, why are you weeping? Which there's a woman crying, so that's a very normal question. Why are you weeping, right? I mean, they know why she's weeping, but... They ask, and she kind of brushes them off, or just, you know, she's in despair. And then Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And now I remember a couple of different times in this gospel where Jesus has said something similar. Whenever Jesus was arrested in John 18, they came to him, and remember, Jesus stepped forward and said, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am. And even when the first disciples came to him, whenever it was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and who we might assume to be John, came to him, Jesus asked them, what are you seeking? And he invites them, come and see. So he's asking Mary, whom are you seeking? We know that Jesus is about to reveal himself to her. And that's what he does when he speaks her name. Whenever she responds to him, she's overwhelmed with grief. She thinks he's a gardener. She's talking to the risen Savior, thinking he's just a gardener. She's probably a little bit rude and a little bit perturbed or, you know, just sad and overwhelmed with grief. Speaking to the risen Savior, not even knowing who he is. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't... 
He doesn't correct her. He doesn't shake his, his fist at her and say, Mary, it's me. He calls her by name. And his kindness reveals who he is to her. And she clings to him. Could, think about this. To be Mary, to be the first one who saw the risen Savior, to be the first one to hug the neck of our risen King. Wow. Just think about this. I mean, Mary, I, th- I thought you were dead. You were, I saw you die. I saw you give up. The, I saw him wrap your body. They put it, you were dead. But now you're alive. Jesus is alive. And that embrace that Mary hugged him with, you'll get to do that one day. And I love this next part. Jesus tells her. He doesn't rebuke her in this next little passage. He, he corrects her. But look at, look, at, look at this correction, okay? When he tells her, woman, do not cling to me. Right? She's hugging on him. She's hugging, Jesus, you're back. Like, I can't even imagine how hard. She's probably crying harder when she's hugging him, right? And he says, listen, don't cling to me. This isn't over. This isn't over. What? I haven't, I, have, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. And listen to what he says right here. I, I love this. He says, go to my brothers. Now up until this point in the gospel, they've been called his servants. They've been called his friends. But now Jesus calls them my brothers. Go to my brothers. Tell them, I'm ascending to my Father. We know that's His Father. We know God the Father is Jesus' Father. But who does Jesus declare that His Father is? And your Father. To my God. We know that God the Father is his God. And to your God. Do you realize that the promise in the Old Testament. Made to the Old Testament patriarchs. Going all the way back to Moses and Abraham and them. Was that I will dwell with them. And be their God. And they will be my people. At these words right here, Jesus is proclaiming that God's promise to be with them and be their God and they be his people has been actualized. We are not waiting on the fulfillment of the promise. We live in the promise. You're not waiting to become a son or daughter of God. You're not waiting for the Messiah to come and for you to become his brother or sister. As a believer in Christ, the promise has been fulfilled. 
You're not looking for salvation. Salvation has come. You are living in salvation. This is what throughout the generations that the people of Israel were clinging to is that God keeps his promises and he promised to be our God and he promised that we'd be his people. And that's what this is. Remember the words of John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right, his rights, his birthright, his earned right, his death right, his birthright, being raised from the dead. He's the preeminent one. He has all right and authority over everything given to you to become a child of God. You're not waiting on eternal life. You're living eternal life. Because of the cross. Because of Christ Jesus. So what does Mary do with this news? What does Mary do? Scripture tells us that she went and told them. Jesus comes to her. Reveals himself as the risen Savior to her. Calls her by name. And tells her. Go tell my brothers. So what does Mary do? She goes and tells. She says, I have seen the Lord. Mary's response should be our response. If you know that you worship the risen Savior, that you belong to the man who was dead and was resurrected, if you know that the Son of God paid the penalty for your sins, if you know and He has called you by name and you have seen the Lord and become reborn again into His family, why don't you tell anyone? that's truly what you believe if that's truly what's happened to you if you have seen the Lord then go tell the world I have seen the Lord let's pray our heavenly father we come before you and Lord we are amazed We are amazed because we worship the Son of God who was crucified, who was buried, who was dead in the tomb, but who was raised to life by your Holy Spirit. That's who we serve. That's who we belong to. God, and every bit of that is just so unbelievable, but yet it's true and we live in it. That's the power of your spirit. That's your power, your life, God. It's the most amazing thing that has ever happened and we have it in us.
God, if there's any, if there's any apathy, if there's any not caring, if there's no passion, if there's no joy, God, stir that within us. We have been shaken and awakened. Let us not live as those who are dead, those who don't care, those who are unconcerned, those who are unchanged. have the life of God in us. Help us share that life with the world so that they can come alive, that they can be made new, that they can experience the fullness of joy of what it is to know you, God. Shake us out of our weariness. Renew in us a spirit of joy. Renew in us a spirit of life and of passion and of callings. Lord, for anyone in here today who does not know you, they haven't come to know you, they have not heard you call them by name, God. Call them today. May they hear you. May they hear that you love them, you care for them, that you're offering them salvation, that you have paid the penalty for their sins. God, may your Holy Spirit stir them to new life through simply turning from themselves, turning to you, and believing in the name of your Son, Jesus. God, I pray you do wondrous things through us. Do things that can't be explained by, by, by our own reasoning, our own logic, our own whatever. We ask you to move this day and every day in our church. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. And we pray all this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and our King Jesus. Amen.